You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Psalm 31, title I have in my Bible says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. And this, the, I think it's called a superscription under that says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. And my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So this is the word of God 
for the people of God this morning. Amen? Would you uh, join me in prayer? Father, I ask that you would come this morning, and Lord, that you would awaken our hearts, that you would soften our hearts, God, that you would cause our hearts to deeply desire to hear from you through the preaching and the study of your word. We pray, Father, that you would come and do a work, do a work of transformation inside of us. Lord, the only thing we need this morning is to hear from you and then to be given the strength to believe and to obey as we look upon the work of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. Father, I pray that you would do that and then some. I trust you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In my study this week uh, for this chapter, I came across a story uh, in a commentary that I can't shake the image that the story paints. The image is this, if you can capture this image of your, in your mind of maybe a, you know, say a little, say a nine-year-old boy. Anybody know any little nine-year-old boys or girls? Say a nine-year-old child on the roof of his house, the house has caught fire, smoke, so thick, this little child can barely see anything, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, Dad, Dad, help. He can't hear anything. That seems to be the emotional place that David is in when he wrote this psalm. Psalm 31 is a song. It doesn't seem to be much of a joyous song, although there are parts. But it's a song about being strong. About being strong and waiting for the Lord to come through in the midst of the darkest of times. Each of us face dark and hard times we cry out to the lord and it's hard to see him in the midst of the smoke and the clouds when all hell breaks loose in your life you know what that's like right and you can't see three feet in front of you because of um, an image that i use often mushroom clouds Mushroom clouds of conflict, like somebody's been dropping bombs in your yard. You can't hardly see through those mushroom clouds. In this moment, this is when David, and we know the author of this psalm, encourages us to be strong and to wait for the Lord to show up. Uh, you can see that this is kind of the general thrust of the psalm if you were to look at verses 23 and 24 with me. The final words of the psalm, he says, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Final words, be strong 
And let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So that's the challenge of the text. It's the core nugget of the text. It's to be strong and to wait for the Lord when everything seems to be falling apart. The question is, how do you do that? Right? Because it's great when a brother or a sister comes to you and knows that your life is falling apart or you're, you're walking through some difficulty. It's really great when a brother or a sister comes and tries to encourage you and says, just be strong. Just trust the Lord. The next logical question always is, how do I do that? And most of us would say, I don't know. Read your Bible more. Pray harder. And those are probably good things. That's the question. How do you do this? How do you stay strong and wait for the Lord? And I would submit these thoughts, uh, first of all, are not (laughs) original with me. I actually think that every preacher probably should jump in the pulpit on Sunday mornings and say, uh, caveat, or... um, Note, most of these thoughts are not original with me. Um, I leaned pretty hard on a, on a commentary this week that I think just had some very solid thoughts. David kind of answers that question, how do you stay strong and wait on the Lord? A couple of different ways. And you can kind of see it in David as he models his way through this psalm. If, you, if we start back in verse 1 and just kind of slowly work our way through, I, I think we see a few things that are pretty solid. The first thing we notice is that we can stay strong and we can wait for the Lord by praying in faith. That's the first one, praying in faith. To Praying in faith is the very first thing you see David doing when the bombs start dropping in his backyard. What he does is he tells the Lord in verses 1 through 8, And David tells him, he says, hey, God, I'm looking to you for refuge and safety. I'm begging you to deliver me so that so I don't experience the shame of defeat. This is where David starts. David kind of appears to me in this moment to be like a man who's basically hanging by his fingertips on the edge of a cliff. You get that image in your mind? You ever see that old movie? I think it was Arnold Schwarzenegger and they're they're, called Cliffhanger, I think. And all throughout the movie, they're constantly jumping off of cliffs and jumping off of mountains and catching things by their fingernails. And I'm just like, ugh. That's the image I catch in my mind as he's hanging by his fingertips on the edge of a cliff. And as he's doing so, he's asking God. He's asking God, please listen to my cries for help. Come to my rescue quickly. I'm about to let go. I don't want to fall. Come and be a solid rock under my dangling feet. Be a fortress that shields me from the hailstones that are dropping in the backyard like crazy. Save me from being completely destroyed. That's the essence of verse 2. After David petitions the Lord for help, you move into verses 3 and 4, and what does he do? He proclaims the steadfast faithfulness of God. He proclaims the steadfast faithfulness of God. He says, man, God is my rock. God is my fortress. When God is leading me, when I'm not leading me, but when God is leading me, God leads me in a direction that makes his own name famous. 
makes his own name famous as a rescuing and redeeming God because that's who God is, right? God always shows up when his people fall into the snares of the enemy, according to verses 3 and 4. Now that recognition, right, when David gets that in his mind, this recognition that God loves to rescue his people from the snares of the enemy. That recognition is what enables David to say in verse 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. This is a prayer of faith. It's a proclamation of absolute, unequivocal trust. You and I might remember that Jesus, on the night of his death, found some extra special comfort in those same exact words, right? Hanging on that cross after being trapped, ensnared by the smooth words of one of his close friends, Judas the betrayer. Sold him out to his enemies for a few pieces of silver. Jesus found extra comfort in these words. It's interesting, you can do a study of how often this psalm, Psalm 31, shows up throughout the rest of the scriptures, and it is quite often. That's a good study to do on your own, to see how it shows up and where it shows up throughout the scriptures and what authors, what prophets, and what apostles quote this psalm. Because it is a, it's a faith-invigoring psalm. This kind of faith, this kind of faith, the the, the kind that completely trusts in God's promises, the kind that completely trusts in God's eventual rescue, it's that kind of faith, with that kind of faith, that David can proclaim that he despises anybody who bows down to worthless idols. We all look to something to save us. When something hits the fan, right? In our most sinful ways, we look to all sorts of things. Some sins and idols, much more acceptable. Others, not so acceptable, at least in the eyes of people. For instance, pornography use, not so acceptable in the eyes of people. Definitely a sin before God. Gossip, on the other hand, Fairly acceptable throughout the church, never confronted as something disqualifying. Yet, these are both sin. And we each have a tendency to look to some kind of sin or idol that gives us either comfort or a sense of control or a sense of power or a sense of acceptance, right? And yet what David is saying is, hey, I despise this idea that we would bow down to anything other than God. The reason he says this is that he knows that the God that he trusts will always come through when the mushroom clouds of Satan, sin, and death come knocking on the door. He says this in verse 6. If you know enough about David's life, (laughs) you know that David was a jacked up dude. And yet Jesus says he's a man after God's own heart. This entire prayer, this entire prayer of faith, as you you soak in what David is saying, I think it strengthens him. 
strengthens him as he waits on God to show up. And I think it even causes him to experience, because he says this in verse 7, causes him to experience a deep, abiding joy and gladness in the midst of his afflictions because of the image of God's steadfast love. Like, in the midst of our deepest afflictions, our, 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 our hardest suffering, our, our greatest difficulty, how often do you find yourself just full of deep, abiding joy? We have a bit of a Baptist uh, sense to us. And to be honest, is like most Baptists don't have this deep, abiding, glad joy. It's more like a kind of frowny face. I try to make the face. It's a frowny face. It's like, mm. We have that look probably more often than a deep, abiding joy, especially in the midst of hardship and difficulty. And yet, and listen, you don't just have to be Baptist to have that weird face either right like (laughs) it's just a natural fleshly way that we respond to hardship and yet david's response here is this deep abiding gladness and joy because he's praying a prayer of faith because he's trusting in a god who is much bigger than his circumstances here's the other thing when you're looking at verse seven here David even acknowledges that God's love, and God's love is not just some kind of impersonal affection. There's this impersonal kind of affection for me where I'm like, I love that Harley. But then there's, and I'm talking about the the, the two-wheeled kind, but then there's this very personal affection where I say, I love my Harley, and I'm speaking about my daughter. A different kind. One's a very impersonal affection. The other one is a deep, personal affection where I would do anything for my daughter, right? This is the kind of love that David is describing in verse 7. God's steadfast love is so intimate. His steadfast love is so close to us when we're standing on that rooftop as a little child and the house is engulfed in flames and the smoke is billowing, you can't see and you can't hear anything, you're just going, Dad, please save me. In that moment, God's love is so intimate, it's so close to you, He he totally knows. He totally understands the distress and the turmoil that's welling up in your life. That's that's the way David is describing God's love in verse 7. Here's the truth. The truth is this. God God doesn't just see your anguish like, oh, look at that. Uh, Poor Joe is going through that. That's, That's too bad. He doesn't just see it. He knows it. And the word for knows here is a very intimate know. It's in the Hebrew, it's the same word where, uh, if I remember right, it's the same word where it says Adam knew his wife and she bore him children. I don't need to illustrate that any further, correct? It's a deep, intimate knowledge. David is saying, he knows, he feels your anguish right alongside you and he hasn't delivered you into the hands of your enemy for all of eternity 
at the end of the day, what David is saying and what we know to be true, what we can take courage in, is knowing that God will set our feet on solid ground when everything else seems to be melting away. I don't know if any of you have ever seen The Princess Bride. It's one of our family's favorite movie movies. We can quote entire sections of the movie, and we do, loudly at each other during vacations and weddings, usually, um, but so that I don't get too far off track with my bunny trail. There is a scene in that movie where they're down in the fire swamp, I think, and there's, you've got rodents, and uh, you've you got fireballs that come up, and then, and then you have quicksand. <laughs> and there's a scene where the princess falls in, and uh, um, her man jumps in after her, and they're gone for like what seems to be an eternity, and then suddenly they come up, and it's like, <gasps> And they're taking these deep, big, deep breaths. You know, it's, it's totally a fairy tale, right? But the whole image there is that he saved her. He saved her from the quicksand. This is what God loves to do. He loves to pull us up out of that quicksand of the accusations of Satan and the temptation of sin and the doom of death. And he likes to set our feet on the solid ground right next to it. That's what God does. Every time you or I proclaim the gospel, believe the gospel, trust the gospel, that's what God does. He loves to do it. God's not in this place where he's like, ah, oh, man, Lewis, again. I gotta come pick you up out of the city. That's not, that might be my response sometimes because I'm a human father who needs to get his act together. But God, God on the other hand, he's like, oh, look, Lewis fell in the fire swamp. Yes. And he's happy. He's overjoyed to do so. And we see, when you catch that image of your father, much different than the image of father that a lot of us have, when you catch that image, it's not like, oh, I want to go jump in the quicksand again. It's like, no, I, I love the fact that my God, my father, my dad loves to just grab me up out of there. That's the picture that David is painting. So, so it's, if you and I are going to like s- stick with this, if you and I are going to stay strong, right? If we're going to wait on God amidst the storms of this life, when we're standing on top of that house where it's burning and we can't see what's going on and, and we just need to stay strong and we need to wait for God to show up and get us out of that fiery place, one of the ways you do it is by praying in faith to the God who always redeems, he always shelters, always helps, always rescues, always loves, never leaves, you're never alone in the midst of that smoke, top of that house. Praying in faith is just the first step. Second thing we see um, is that we need to pray for God's grace. That would be the second thing we see in the text. You stay strong and you wait for God by praying for grace. And whenever I think about God's grace, I am reminded of uh, the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And what Paul says there is, he says, hey, God spoke to me and he said this to me. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, can I just pause there for a minute and just make an observation that is really, really important? Let me me read it again. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, God's power is made perfect on the other side of weakness. Does it say that? 
No. Um, or my, my power is made perfect when you finally find the strength to quit being weak. Right? No, it doesn't say that. It says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Let me ask this question. I always love asking that it gets rhetorical, right? Do you know what the, you know what the Greek word for in means? In. The Greek word for in means in. 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 Not on the other side. Not when this difficulty gets over. Not when the smoke clears. Not after somebody lifts a boom truck up to the top of the house and gets the kid down. It's in that moment of weakness and difficulty and suffering and trial and hardship. It's in that moment of weakness that God's power is perfectly shown. That theological truth is what then leaves the Apostle Paul to respond to God by saying this, just, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest upon me. So here's the problem with fundamentalism and legalism. The problem is, is that, well, a problem with, I could, I could put all sorts of isms on it. We're just going to start there, though. Here's the problem. The problem is that we like to get all spit, shine, and cleaning and kind of prove that we're good. Like prove that we're doing well, right? Prove that we're not so weak. Prove that we're smarter than we really are. Prove that we're better than we really are. And what happens? In the midst of that, what do we turn into? Well, you take the two guys who are praying, Right? You have the publican whose head is bowed. God help me, I'm a worthless, helpless sinner. And then you have this other guy, right? The Pharisee, who's like, Lord, thank you, Jesus, that I don't struggle with all the filth that that guy struggles with. I've done this right. I got that right. I got this right. And Jesus says, you, my friend, have no place in my kingdom. That guy over there that you despise, you look down upon, he has a place in my kingdom. Doesn't that give you some encouragement? Like, Because deep down inside, even if you try to make yourself out to be the Pharisee, don't you know that this really is who each of us is? There's no amount of good that we could do to make things right, right? I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me, the Apostle Paul says. So the Apostle Paul knew that his weaknesses created a spotlight for God's power to work in and through him in miraculous ways. And in this same way, David, verses 9 through 18, cries out to God. And he cries out to God to be gracious with him in the midst of his afflictions, right? And he describes these afflictions as basically taking a massive physical and emotional toll on him from the depths of his soul to the redness in his eyes to the weakness he feels in his body, according to verse 9. That's the way he's describing himself. I'm absolutely worn out from the inside out. I've got nothing left to give. Verse 10, he, David basically says, hey, I'm literally spent. I'm spent from the inside out, from the top of my body to the soles of my feet. I feel this deep sorrow, this, this sadness. I'm out of breath. I can't even hardly breathe. And then my strength is gone because of my own iniquity, meaning my own sin. My body feels like it's nearly wasted away, ready for the grave. I'm ready for death. I think I'm going to die. 
That's how deeply David is feeling the circumstances of his life. He moves on and describes it now, not so personally from the inside and how much he's feeling, but he, he describes it based on his neighbors and his friends, his acquaintances, right? Verses 11 through 14, roughly. She said, my neighbors and my friends, pretty sure, they're pretty sure I'm a lost cause. That's basically what David is saying. And so much so that they actually avoid me in public. You ever have a, an old friend? Um, you know, parentheses, old friend that just avoids you now? You know what that feels like, right? They avoid him in public. They act like they have forgotten him. Don't even know that guy. Won't even look at him. Act like they've forgotten him as though he had died. Or another way he used to illustrate this is it's almost like I died. Or it's almost like I'm a shattered pot that's been swept into the trash into the corner I've forgotten about. That's the imagery David is using. He even recounts how his actual enemies, the ones he knows are his enemies. Personally, I like the enemies that I know, not the ones that I don't know, if that makes any sense. Like the ones that are so sneaky that you don't know until it just <laughs> hits you upside the head and it's like, oh, where'd that come from? It's the enemies that you know they are a lot easier because you can kind of at least plan for it. You can study them out, art of war stuff, you know. David, his enemies, they're whispering about him. They're whispering in the corners about him. They're scheming about ways that they can take him out for good. And even in, even in the midst of all that, Verse 14, David says that he's trusting in God, not in some weird kind of an abstract way, okay? But in a very personal way. He says, I trust in you. You are my God. It's not basically, he's not saying, man, I, I'm trusting that God might be that kind of father. Maybe he'd be a father like this friend of mine has, he's actually saying, I trust in you. You are my father. I know you personally walking with you. At the end of the day, when you think about the difference between abstract and concrete, no abstract God will come through for you in the midst of your afflictions, right? No abstract God can extend the healing or the comforting balm of grace that you and I need in the midst of our struggle with Satan, sin, and death. At the end of the day, only a personal and perfect and holy God who gave his one and only Son to pay the price for our war against him. Only this kind of God who gave it all to remove the obstacles that we actually place between us you think about that. We place the obstacle there. And the God we trust in and believe in, the God that, that David is crying out to for grace, he's the one who came and removed those obstacles that we put there. Only that kind of God could offer the true, free gift of unearned favor in our darkest of times. That's what grace is. It's unearned favor favor you don't get to earn the grace it's a free gift you can respond because of that grace but you can't get more of it by doing anything better it's actually the opposite it's it's, the, it's as the realization of god's grace deepens for you in light of your brokenness and your sin 
and the obstacles that you keep placing there and the vision of the God, the good father who comes in just goes, oh man, I love getting these obstacles out of the way. You are so, gosh, kid, what's up with you? Let me get that out of the way. When you get that image of that kind of father in your mind, that's grace. No kind of law preaching is ever going to cause any of us to get any better at not putting those obstacles there. It's only grace. It's always grace. Only that kind of God can offer that in our darkest of times. And that's why David is able to say in verses 16 and 17, in his entire life, all of the time that he has left and has had on this earth, it's in God's hands. And he's trusting God to rescue him. He's trusting God to shine the presence of his steadfast love and saving grace upon him. So David's praying. It's a, it's a sheer act of grace. Once again, press this point one more time. It's a sheer act of grace that God, the one that we treated as our enemy when we rebelled against him in our sin, a sheer act of grace that he would step in and remove our sin and remove the consequences of that sin and then at the same time shield us from the shame and the defeat and the onslaught of any enemy who attempts to defeat us. He takes us in as enemies and transforms us into family and then protects us against our enemies. I, I think I have a few enemies. Yeah, I can see a few of them in my mind right now. It's not my first instinct at all to go, hey, let me help remove the obstacle that you put between us and let me then shield you from any enemies you may have. My instinct, I think, is more art of war things. Right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Follow me? That's not a gospel response in any way. So this is what God does. He comes in and takes us in as enemies and turns us into family and then shields us from our enemies. And that is the kind of grace that David is asking for. When he's asking for grace, he's asking for that kind of grace. You ever pray that way? When you're praying to God, hey God, I, I know I've acted like your enemy. I know I've been made into your family. Even though I didn't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. Would you now protect me from anything that would come against me? That's praying for God's grace in a whole different way. And that's what David is doing. He's begging God to protect him in verse 17. For, from the shame of defeat and to put his enemies to shame, to put them to death, to silence their lying lips. And David gets very graphic sometimes in the Psalms. Um, I think there's one that says, cut off the lying lips. Like, ooh, is that like razor blade or buck knife? I don't know. That's why I love the Psalms. They're gritty, they're real, right? They use real human imagery. Silence their lying lips. Crush them in their pride and their contempt. The moral of the story is this, if you and I are going to stay strong, if we're going to wait on God amidst the storms of this life, the way that we do it, by praying for continued grace from the God who makes his enemies into family and then goes to war on their behalf against their enemies too. But praying in faith 
and praying for grace are not the only things we see in the text um, when it comes to this staying strong and waiting for God when all hell breaks loose. The last thing we see is that we need to praise God amidst the storm. That's the last thing you see. It's funny because we used to sing that song here all the time, and it was like every week in the first cup. I think we still sing it sometimes, praise you in the storm. It was like every week for a while, and there was at one point where we were all like, please stop singing this song. Maybe if we stop singing this song, maybe the storms will stop. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we started to think that because we sang the songs, this is this, this is why everybody's lives were falling apart. And no, it wasn't the reality. We're still singing it, you know, ten years later. <laughs> we stay strong. We wait for God by praising Him in the midst of the storm. I don't know about you, but uh, when it comes to storms, it seems really hard to praise God. It seems hard to praise God when you've got these big, dark storm clouds of Satan, sin, and death looming over your head. I think again of that, that kid on top of that house, all that smoke. Does that really seem like a good time to stop and just start praising God? You know, like, oh, my dad, he's so great. He's so awesome. He's so faithful. I don't know if that's the time to do that. It doesn't feel like the time when you're going to do that, right? It feels more like a time when I'm going to try to figure out how to get off the stinking roof and stay alive in my own strength. David finds this way of praising God amidst this storm. So you think about some of the basic big categorical storms that come against us, right? Uh, We only have three enemies, basically, according to Scripture. And you hear me say it all the time. It's Satan, sin, and death. Those are our three enemies. Out of those three enemies, there's all sorts of splinters. And we could splinter out forever. Um, When you think about Satan, sin, and death as your three major enemies that, that Jesus died to crush, Give us victory over. Satan accuses, right? So that's one category. Satan's accusations sometimes become too much to bear, don't they? Um, How about sin? Let's just say sin's temptation. Again, just painting with broad strokes. Um, Sin's temptation. Does it ever just feel like it's too hard to resist? The temptation that's there? Um, Or death. And death is like a fearful doom. I'm coming for you. Not like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back, but more like I'm coming for you and you can't escape me. One day, every person's going to die. It's just how is the question. <laughs> That's always my thing. I'm not, I don't really care about when, but it's how. I don't like the idea of being chopped up into pieces because I believe in Jesus. I mean, there's just some things that really horrify me when I think about death. Um, in these moments, when, when accusation, temptation, and doom just swirls over our heads, that's the smoke that's coming up around the house at us, right? And we're just going, Dad, please help me out of here. It seems easier to maybe give in to those accusations or give in to that temptation or give in to that fear, hide in the corner, rather than praise God. That's not the model that David sets for us here, right? The final verses, 19 through 22, what does David do? He shows us what it's like to stay strong and to wait on God by praising him amidst the storm when the full weight of his enemies feels like it's crushing the breath out of his lungs. But in verse 19, David praises God by doing what? He's proclaiming the overabundance of God's goodness. So you're that kid, you're on top of the house, you're in that smoke, you can't get down, you can't get out, you're, you're scared, you're fearful. And in that moment, You just start proclaiming, God, you're so good. 
You're so good. Despite the circumstances around me, you're, you're so good, even in the midst of this hardship. For David, from his place of refuge in God's presence, according to verse 19, he can see that God is always working out our suffering so at the end of the day, he, God alone, gets the glory in front of all humanity, all of creation. God is the one, in verse 20, who covers his children with his preserving presence so that they're absolutely hidden from the deadly plots and the venomous lips of human enemies. You think about all these massive theological truths we're talking about. These theological truths are what continues to drive David's praise amidst that storm when he proclaims that God is blessed because his love never ends, verse 21. God's love towards his people never changes. I say this all the time because I need to be reminded of it. There's nothing that I could do wrong that would lessen God's love for me. Consequently, there's nothing that I could do right that would increase his love for me. God's love for me is not based on me. And that's probably part of the problem with most modern evangelism. Is that we base it on a person rather than the person and work of Jesus. God loves me perfectly because of what Jesus did at the cross. I am covered in that blood. Therefore, when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus covering me. And everything filthy about me was placed on Jesus. He took that and traded it. Let me take all that broken, mashed up, nasty stuff. Let me give you this perfection. Now my Father can love you completely. And nothing that you can do will ever change that. That's where David's at in verse 21. Praising God because of his goodness, because of his love. Even when all of us, when David, or when you, or when I begin to wonder where God is at, where is he at in the midst of our suffering against Satan, sin, and death? Where is he at when I'm like a six-year-old little boy standing on top of that burning house, and everybody who ever loved me, I think, is gone, right? Where is he at in those moments, Satan, sin, and death coming against me? Well, we can rest assured with David. And when it's really hard to see God through the mushroom clouds, he can still see us. And he hears our cries for help. And he acts on our behalf. You can go back to that image of a little boy on the housetop. I think this is a good way to conclude things. You go back to that image that we started with, that little boy on the housetop. The house has been burning for a while, and there's flames, and there's smoke, and it's scary. You're crying out for Dad, right? And you can't see anything. And suddenly, through the smoke, you're this little boy, or you're this little girl. Suddenly, through the smoke, you hear your dad's voice. And he says, I see you. I hear you. I see you, I hear you. And all you can say is, Dad, I can't see you. I can hear you, but I can't see you. And God says, I can see you. All you have to do is jump through the smoke. I'll catch you. You think about a leap of faith, right? I 
think sometimes we get this idea that God's going to come help us. He's going to help us be strong and wait for him in the midst of that. And then eventually he's going to like reveal himself so we can see him. And then the jumping's easy. Right? Like probably scary enough to jump off of a burning building into somebody's arms you can see. But if you can't see him, and you can hear him, and he's saying, hey, take a jump. This is what it looks like to be obedient and to trust God as you wage war um, in, in the power of the cross against Satan, sin, and death. And when I think about David writing this psalm, here's what I see. I see a man who killed a lion, killed a bear, I think, killed a giant with a slingshot. He ruled an entire nation, right? Defeated more enemies in battle than I think I'm ever going to. Reminded that David is a man who not only dealt with fear and betrayal from some of his closest friends and family, but he also faced the consequences of his own failures and sin in some pretty horrific ways. Did some horrific things. He's a bad man. It was through those experiences, though, that David learned how to be strong, learned how to wait for God so that God could go to work. When I, when I hear David in this psalm praying in faith, praying for grace, praising God amidst the storm clouds of his enemies' assaults, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged to apply those closing words of this psalm in the same way. Right? I want to pray in faith. I want to pray for grace. I want to praise God amidst the storm. I want to heed this call in verses, what, 23 and 24. To love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Finally, be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So pray in faith. Pray for grace. And praise God amidst the storm. Amen. Yeah, would you stand with me? Father. Thank you so much for your word. Pray this morning, God, as we close, that you would bring our hearts to a place of just deep, abiding trust in you. Not sure what each person in this room is enduring or walking through or waiting for, yet I trust and know that you know, and you see, and you hear and you want to answer, and you want to redeem, and you want to heal, and you want to restore. So I pray, God, that you would do some of that work in our closing time. Strengthen our faith. Give us grace. Help us to praise you in the midst of our storms. Trust you to do that in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.